Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, travellers from virus hotspots are going to be required to quarantine when they arrive in Britain from the 15th of February. Arrivals from countries on the so-called red list will need to isolate for 10 days in government-approved accommodation. Quarantine hotels are expected to be set up near airports. But if you ask the Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds, it's too little, too late. We've seen the vast majority of other countries adopting far, far stronger measures than the UK has. And we are concerned that we're seeing this partial approach, that it's happening too slowly. And this is a race against time. Yeah. And I mean, this is something we've talked about for a few weeks now. So there is a sense in that argument. The other side comes from the Foreign Office Minister, James Cleverly. He says it takes time to sort out how many people are going to get to their hotels, how they do that and how they do it safely and securely. As soon as you start looking at the detail of implementing this, it's really important that the border officials, the ports and the receiving hotels are all coordinated on this, including things uh, like travel. That's why we're giving notice. That's why we're working with the industry to make sure that this is effective when it's brought in. And similar rules are coming into force in Scotland as well, where travellers from any country will be taken to a quarantine facility. Right, now let's get to the topic of today's special programme. Much has been said about the growing possibility of Scottish independence, possibly Irish reunification. Recent polls show majority support for referendums in both regions. Well, in this programme, we're going to focus on another part of the union, which some say Westminster should not take for granted. We're talking about Wales. Now, earlier this week on the programme, we spoke to the Cardiff University professor, Roger Owen Scully, about the chances of a Welsh exit from the UK. If there were to be some sort of political process that led to Scotland, for instance, voting for independence, I think the conversation in Wales changes from the following morning uh, and very sharply, very abruptly. I mean, the support for the union in Wales at the moment, I think, is overwhelmingly support for you know, Wales being part of a multinational UK. And if that multinational UK really is no longer on offer, if what is on offer is really essentially being an add-on to England, and I think a lot of those who are currently supporters of the union would probably shift in the direction of independence. That was uh, Roger Alan Scully there, the uh, Cardiff University professor, talking about the possibility of a Welsh exit from the United Kingdom. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Simon Hart, the Secretary of State for Wales. A Secretary of State, I, I want to get your reaction to that prospect, that if we get Scottish independence, Irish reunification, Wales won't stick around as well. W what's your take on that? I mean, it's very hypothetical, isn't it? I mean, that just makes a huge number of, uh, of, of, of assumptions, which none of us, uh, not only do we not really believe it, but actually I don't think Roger's got any, any real evidence to suggest that that will be uh, the case. So I'm, I take that with a big pinch of salt. 
Yes, but Secretary of State, at the same time, there are moves we know in lots of different parts of the UK pulling it uh, sideways, if not actually apart. And isn't part of the problem that the reason that some of this is getting support in Wales simply the fact that the Westminster government doesn't connect with Welsh people? I, I, again, I mean, you wouldn't, you'd expect me to say this, wouldn't you? But um, I do dispute that. And I, I, I also think that even if you take Nicola Sturgeon's own comments and Alex Hammond's own comments in, uh, in Scotland when, when they used to speak to each other, um, it, uh, the, you know, they saw a referendum when it was last held as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That's, uh, I don't think uh, uh, anybody would much disagree with that. I think the COVID uh, process has actually bound the union together quite. I think it's made us realise just how important it is to function as a union. But the really important thing about this, it's not just about money. It is actually, there is an emotional argument, a social argument, a cultural, historic argument about the union. But I'm, I, I think, picking up more and more of it's the fact that it is perfectly possible to be a, a you know, deeply embedded uh, patriot at the same time as yeah. being um, part of the union. And I don't buy, and nor does anybody who's been on a furlough scheme, anybody who's had a business loan, anybody who has, in a sense, benefited from the union over the last 12 months. I don't buy the idea that, you know, Westminster doesn't care. There is turnout in a Westminster election in Wales is, is north of 70%. Turnout for a Welsh government, a Welsh Senate election in Wales, is you know twenty points less than that. The idea so, that the Welsh nation is absolutely embraced by uh, uh, and engaged with Welsh uh, uh, government is not borne out by the election uh, uh, turnout. I would make the opposite argument that you did to the COVID process, which is that each of the four nations has really had a chance to, to, to prove its mettle and to shine throughout this. Uh, as a result, we've seen England coming up with the highest uh, per capita death rate after, out of all of them. Um, is this not an opportunity really where Wales has shown, the local administration has shown that they've handled the pandemic well? No, to be honest, that's absolutely wrong. The death rate per 100,000 Wales are actually the second highest in Europe for quite a lot during this. Is, so you're, I'm afraid the, 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 the pretext of your comment is, is plain wrong. The fact is four different administrations in the UK have uh, tried to, to, to deal with this in their own different way and actually largely ended up in the same place. But also to, it, to suggest that the sort of population dynamic of Wales, the distribution, the way in which society works in Wales um, is identical to England. It's to, is to be uh, also to massively oversimplify things. So, in, for, for, so, so the idea that there is a sort of direct comparison to be made is demonstrably untrue. If you look at the results, as indeed it is across most of the world. In fact, there are no there are no absolute comparisons. Everybody struggled with COVID anywhere in the world. It's been a vicious and unpredictable enemy. And the idea that one nation's done any better than others is frankly, well, yeah, is frankly not borne out by the fact. Yeah, but, but Secretary of State, with respect, the point surely is that there have been differences in the way restrictions have been applied. There's no question about that. You can see it in Wales. You can see it in Scotland. You can see it in Northern Ireland. And to many people looking at what's happened in Wales, it seems to have been perhaps a lot stricter in many areas and actually better organised, better communicated. I mean, that comes across in what people are saying in newspapers, but also in opinion polls. No, I, don't, I, 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 I absolutely dispute that. I think that uh, anybody who's, as I do live in Wales, I work in Wales, uh, I deal with businesses across Wales, charities, universities, you name what it is, that is absolutely not the case. But that's not necessarily a criticism, by the way, of Welsh Government. It's just the fact that um, this has been, as I say, a very unpredictable path to follow. 
and that nobody has come up with a magic solution. And if you look at the deaths per 100,000, the infections per 100,000, the vaccinations per 100,000, Welsh government have got, uh, 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 in a sense, no better place than anybody else. The numbers speak for themselves. Would you say, though, that the Welsh administration has done a good job on this? Um, I think it's done a, a, in a sense, it's done a reasonable job in certain areas, but I don't think anybody thinks that what they've done has has been sort of outstandingly different in a way. And in some cases, and there are some businesses, for example, some of the uh, financial interventions and support, which have taken a lot longer to come through in Wales than they have done uh, in the rest of the UK, that's been very difficult. I think the early stages of vaccination programme were very, very difficult, but they've caught up. And they've caught up because they've been able to tap into the support of the army in Wales. That's a union point. They couldn't have done that on their own, but they've done it because we're part of the union. Uh, There are uh, a number of other um, issues around sort of health provision, which have be only been possible because of being part of the uh, part of the union. As I say, I don't believe that there is an, an easy way to point and say, mm. well, what else has it been done differently? It's been done better. The numbers don't support that. It's been very, very difficult for everybody. And in some cases, the, uh, the additional layer of bureaucracy provided by Cardiff has actually made the process slower, and that's made uh, economic recovery and dealing with the de- disease more difficult. Let, let's deal with one of the key issues, which is that Wales is the poorest part of the UK. Now, that reflects many things, I'm sure, but it has consistently the highest poverty rate. 23% of Welsh households have a below-average income, according to the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. Basically, the central government needs to give Wales a larger part of the cake, doesn't it? Um, I don't know whether those figures are a uh, what, whether they're a reflection on the on the achievements of Welsh government in twenty three years. Um, is that, I don't know if that's the point you're trying to make. No, no. The, po- um, the point is about really, cutting the national it, it, cake. You know, the funding issue yeah. is big with regard to Scotland. It's also big with regard yeah. to Wales. Yeah, and, and Wales gets more per capita than uh, than England, as we know. Uh, Scotland gets the highest uh, proportion per capita, and there is a deprivation element in that. So, at the moment, the uh, situation is as they are, when the cut, when the cake is cut, Wales gets a bigger share of it per head of population than England does. And, and sometimes our colleagues in Cardiff don't like uh, hearing that. But uh, and during you know we've we've been. Uh, witnessing almost on a daily, let alone a weekly basis during the whole COVID crisis, the, the ability and the determination of the UK government to make sure that the money comes out the door as fast as possible. They're paying all of this money up front, £5.2 billion up front to Welsh government in order that it can get to the places it needs to get as quickly and, as possible. And on that point, on that point, looking ahead, um, is Wales going to get at least as much from the Shared Prosperity Fund as it did from EU grants before? It was a big recipient there. Uh, 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 absolutely. And that's a guarantee. Manifesto guarantee. Uh, we know what the five-year average is, the 375 million. It will get the minimum of that plus on top of that. And I think the, the great thing about the Shared Prosperity Fund is that this is a you know, potentially big, uh, big win for Wales. Is the fact that uh, in the past uh, it's been largely unaccountable because, unsurprisingly, it's uh, uh, it's got you know significant EU influence. Now it's going to be hopefully a UK gov, Welsh gov collaborative approach directly accountable to voters in Wales in a way that it hasn't been for 45 years. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, we just had a great discussion there with Simon Hart, the Secretary of State for Wales. Uh, didn't we, Roger? Let's hear from the other side of this now, uh, from the main nationalist party in Wales. Joining us now is Liz Savile-Roberts. Uh, she's an MP uh, and she's also the group leader of Plaid Cymru in the House of Commons. Um, I mean, Liz, one of the discussions we just had with Simon was, was around funding. Uh, and he made the point that Wales gets, I guess, the highest per capita investment uh, out of the unions in the UK. Um, it, it, on that basis, is Wales not better off as part of the United Kingdom? I, I suspected that you would raise this point because it's one, it's one but not the only point that people raise in relation to independence. Let's just take a, a couple of steps back, first of all. Um, Wales is being told by unionist parties, of which, of course, the Conservative Party is one, um, you know, how, how, how well provided we are, uh, how dependent we are on the money that is coming from Westminster. Yet, of course, it is unionist parties that have run Wales, you know, and we're talking about the Labour Party here since devolution came, came into existence in uh, 1999. Unionist parties have run Wales, and yet that's the position in which they leave us. Why would we want to tolerate? Why would we aspire to being the most dependent nation within the United Kingdom? And of course, this, this way of approaching any call for greater autonomy, for self-government, for independence, if you look back over the history of the British Empire and other colonialist empires, the one common message they've always told those people who were aspiring for something else was, you're too poor. You can't afford to do it. You can't do it on your own. They've told it to Ireland. They told it to India. Russia, I imagine, told it to Estonia. And yet Estonia's economy, what, 30 years later, after they got independence in 1991, it's booming. Well, Liz, I mean... It's a cliche of an argument. Well, it may be, but with 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 respect, it sounds... With respect, it sounds like almost an emotional argument. The point, surely, is that Wales is the poorest part of the UK, despite getting uh, this amount of money that it gets. Isn't it rational to say that to to be independent, to move away from the union, would be economically, well, unwise, to put it mildly, in that situation? That's just reality, quite apart from emotion. Or alternatively, could we afford not to? I mean, look at a situation where an independent government... what, the lowest borrowing rates we've had within, I think, within my lifetime. The UK government is borrowing itself to deal with the, the grim reality, realities of, of both Brexit and the COVID crisis. It can do that. There is a cap on how much Welsh government can borrow. We can't actually operate in that degree of independence. With independence, we could start putting our own priorities first and using the way that money operates within governments across the world, using that to our own effect. The UK government can do that. They have prevented, in the, 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 the asymmetrical pattern that we had of devolution in the United Kingdom, the Welsh, Welsh government has far fewer powers. It's effectively prevented from using the same resources. To look at the, the emotional arguments over and above that, and of course, that's again... I imagine that Simon Hart has used these arguments as well. He will be playing to a lack of confidence, the idea that Westminster knows best. But even across the north of England now, there are serious questions about the degree of funding that's always assumed to go to the southeast of England. 
These questions are rising not just in Wales, but in other places yeah. as well. But then straight away you come, OK, it's easy enough to describe the problem. And as I said, in Wales, we've been on the receiving end of not having the degree of support within this fantastic union that gets us out of this entrenched poverty. It then asks, what's the solution to it? What about EU membership? I mean, the EU undoubtedly has been a huge uh, supporter of the Welsh regions that are in poverty. If Wales became independent, would you seek to rejoin the European Union? My party has as one of its constitutional aims an independent Wales within Europe. There is always a process by which we arrive at that point. And we now find that we have been drawn out of the EU and it's not going to be something that happens overnight. So we have to deal with the context in which we find ourselves. The context in which we find ourselves also deals with the UK Internal Market Bill and also the Shared Prosperity Fund, which looks, if we had been under the previous EU regime, that money would have come straight to Wales for us to allocate how it should be used. Now, I'm not arguing that it was used to best effect in all cases in the past. It certainly wasn't. But it came to Wales... It was allocated to Wales on the ground that it was recognised that Wales was below a certain level of poverty. That precedent does not exist under the UK government and the Tories. They are looking to maintain their grip on that money. And what I greatly fear in the sort of politics that we're going to move in, now that we've moved away from those principled policy decisions as to how the money was directed, we're going to be looking at what is called in a shorthand as pork barrel politics. Well, well, I Liz expect the Tories to continue to use this money to buy votes, particularly as it happens in the Red Wall constituencies up in the north of well, England, because they're losing those votes hands over fist. Let, let me tell you, Liz, that, 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 uh, that Simon Hart, the Secretary of State for Wales, just spoke to us and said that Wales would receive at least as much funding from the Shared Prosperity Fund as it did from EU grants. He gave us that assurance. Yeah, well, he said that in the past. We've seen no evidence of it yet. But let me make one other point, Liz, which is that for all the benefits that the EU... Uh, brought to Wales, which you've been talking about, Welsh people overwhelmingly voted against remaining in the European Union, didn't they? Many people voted against remaining in the European Union across England as well, not so much in Scotland and Northern Ireland. We know that the vote went in the other way there. This was an expression of discontent, discontent with politics as things stand. We now have a government in Westminster, rather than addressing the fact that we have four different nations in the United Kingdom drawing in different ways, they are rather trying to grab hold and keep hold of power within Westminster, with the right. inbuilt majority, of course, of English MPs in making every decision, rather than addressing this asymmetrical pattern where we have different sorts of different devolution, devolution basically in Wales, the model that we have does not work effectively, rather than actually respecting that subsidiarity, actually taking power down to people and making it work effectively to make their lives better. This is a government that's using this to shore the point, up their own though, political advantage. The, the, the point is that there is currently no mandate for, for Wales rejoining the EU. Would you seek another referendum after independence to get that done? Well, in the first first instance, Plaid Cymru is concentrating on the, the growing interest on in independence within Wales. And while the figures, I'm sure you'll quote these figures to me, remain smaller than they are, people who are interested in, or, or supportive of independence in Wales, they are lower than they are in Scotland. And there's a different dynamic to what we're seeing happening in Northern Ireland. The interesting thing, I think, and I think this is why I'm trying to be unpolitical, or you won't believe me, 
the interesting thing here is you're seeing a tendency of greater interest in independence because we've seen how politics, people are far more alert since 2014 and the Scottish referendum and then, of course, the 2016 EU referendum. People have switched on to politics, for better or for worse. They're asking questions about who's making decisions that affect their lives in whose interest. Yeah. And the, the percentage of people interested in both holding an independence referendum and in support of a referendum has increased within the last five years exponentially. Well, Les, talking about mandates, if in the Senate elections, which are coming up in May, uh, Pride gets a, a, a much increased number of seats, that would stand, I suppose, perhaps as a kind of mandate. What are you aiming for? I mean, what, what do you expect in the way of the vote in, in the May elections? We're very much hoping to be in, in the position to be in power in Wales. We are a political But that's party not realistic, is it? You know, that's not going to happen. But every political party goes into an election at this, you know, at this stage of an election. We are going into aiming to be in power. Okay. What, what about the identity aspect around this? Because this is the huge emotional thing that we're seeing works quite well in, in Scotland. And I'm sure it's an argument that will be used in Wales as well. Um, I mean, Simon Hart made the point to us that it's possible to be a Welsh patriot and part of the union. Is that not something you would agree with as somebody who spent your early, early years in England? I, what interests me about Simon Hart is he can say that it's possible to be a Welsh patriot, obviously from his point of view, and at the same time be telling people in Wales, look, you are incapable of looking after your own affairs. You're too poor, you're not mature enough, you're incapable of looking after your own affairs. I find it very, very difficult to, to reconcile those two positions. And interestingly, it, it isn't just a party such as Plaid Cymru, which of course would be talking along those lines. Other people are coming to the same conclusion as well. But to be supportive of Wales, to have the best interest of Wales in heart, is not a matter of, of where you were born or where you were raised, your, your pedigree. It is for the people who live in this place to look around them and wonder whether the present government strategies really put their best, have their best interests at heart, or is there a better way of doing this? And to have aspiration and ambition in relation to that. What we see with the Tories is really a, a content with the status quo, that they know best and they can tell us what to do. And to be honest, Simon Hart may phrase this in many, many quite um, palatable terms, but it boils down to telling the people of Wales that they are not fit to look after yeah. themselves. And that, I think, is something we, need, we really need to question. Liz, thank you so much for being with us. Liz Savile-Roberts there, MP for Duivo Merionith and Group Leader of Plaid Cymru in the House of Commons, ending our Welsh special today. And let me say it's special in another way, too, because this, and get out your handkerchiefs at this point, is the very last show of Sebastian Salek, my uh, honoured companion, uh, who's been with me during this programme as we've been taking it from its beginnings, uh, has done, I think we can all agree, a fantastic job. Seb, we'll be very sad to see you go. Well, listen, I'm going to miss you all as well. And thank you so much. It's been wonderful doing this. It's been great working with the whole team. Um, I, I'm really proud of, of what we've created over the last, what, 18 months, 14 months, whatever it is. Um, and I can't wait to see where you take it next. I'll be listening in. Well, we will remember that. We, will, we have a lot to live <laughs> up to. But if I can just say from myself and from the production team, uh, thanks very much indeed, Seb. You have made it very much your own programme. Now we're going to have to make it a programme without you. But I'm sure we'll carry on. But we've really, I personally have really enjoyed uh, working with you. And uh, we you will too, continue to too. delve into the uh, sometimes otherwise neglected waters of British politics. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. 